Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play. Visit SaveTheDamnScore.com today. I Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. It's time for episode 58 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you heard the big-voiced guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, recording in the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. This podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting industry, and I chat with sportscasters from all over the country about the business and their stories inside this wacky industry. This is the first episode where we took questions from social media. So if you'd like your questions in the future to be asked on the podcast, make sure to follow Radio underscore Logan on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Right now we are joined by a very special guest. He is the number two broadcaster for CBS on TV, the voice of the New Jersey Nets on TV, we are chatting with Ian Eagle, and Ian, how are you doing? Logan, I'm doing great. I have to tell you, right out of the gate, you you owe me a buck. You owe me a dollar. Uh, the, the New Jersey Nets no longer exist. They are now the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, God. It happened. <laughs> it's real. Oh, boy. I, I should edit that out, but I'm not going to. So. <laughs> I'm a big NBA fan, and I know that. I don't know what I'm thinking, but that's okay. So the first question I wanted to ask I thought would be an interesting comparison because the last person I had on this show was Joe Davis, and he went to Beloit College Tiny School Division Three in Wisconsin. You, on the other hand, are a product of Syracuse University, a broadcast factory that just turns out you know, broadcasters like plastic molds. And comparing the difference between the two, I guess, how important was Syracuse in your development? Well, when I was making the decision uh, to pursue this as a career, uh, my my first thought process was I want to go where the litany of broadcasters that have had success have gone. That's what struck me. I had no background in it whatsoever. I didn't work at a high school radio station. I didn't do the morning announcements for my school. I just felt at a young age that this was a job that I wanted to truly pursue. And Syracuse just kept popping up in conversation from Marty Glickman to Marv Albert to Dick Stockton to Bob Costas, Sean McDonough. That was enough for me to to show legitimate interest. And as I got closer to that actual decision, Logan, 
it just made the most sense. I lived in the New York area, grew up in Forest Hills, and I just felt that was the place for me. I didn't go and look at the facilities and I didn't tour 20 other colleges. Just had a gut feeling that that was the right place. In hindsight, it was. It, it turned out to be uh, the, the right spot for me. But what I've learned in all the years of talking to younger broadcasters and high school students trying to figure out what the next move is, it's not the only way. And to me, the, the biggest key is as, as long as you have a, a place to polish your skills, to work on your craft, an opportunity, I don't care what college it is. Is there a station? Are there games to be called? Are there teams to cover? And is there enough support within that structure that you can improve, that you can develop, that you can evolve as a broadcaster? Uh, I've met so many different broadcasters across the country doing this job for so many years, and they all have a different story. Everybody's story is unique. So the Syracuse angle for me worked, it fit. I liked the competition. I liked the idea that there were others showing up at Syracuse that had the same interest, that had an aptitude for it, and that uh, the hope was we would push one another to improve, to get better, and to work hard. And ultimately, that's what happened. But I don't think it's, it's the sole way to, to attack this and, and try to navigate your way through this, this wacky business. How difficult was it for you we'll just say freshman year going through to your senior year, how difficult was it to get reps with the competition? I mean, obviously you're getting excellent instruction in the meantime, but to get those reps, that's always seems to be the, the biggest advantage of going to a smaller school is that there's no competition for reps. And I've heard it's not the case that way at Syracuse. It, it isn't. Uh, it, it takes a while. There is a cast system that's in place and it's been that way for a long time. Now, as compared to previous years, you do have the opportunity to work at multiple radio stations. When I was there, I graduated in 1990. You had to make a choice. You had to work at one or the other. There was Z89. There was WAER. WAER is famous for its alums and the fact that they do call the men's basketball games, the football games, the lacrosse games. Z89 at the time calling the women's basketball games, which is still the case. They've since picked up high school football, and there are more opportunities than there were uh, back when I was there in the mid to late 80s. I think it's a mindset, and there's a process when it comes to broadcasting. Uh, I've heard uh, many announcers who have sent me tapes of their stuff from high school, from early in their college years, and they're not yet at a point where their voice has matured, where their vocabulary is uh, ample and is available to them at every step along the way of a broadcast. And yes, they're going off instincts, they're going off what they hear, they're trying to mirror other broadcasters that they've grown up with, and that's where it starts. Nobody comes out of the womb and is ready uh, to do a, a three-hour football game. It requires a uh, curiosity and a, a ear 
for the job where you can hear something and then use it and mold it to the way that you're comfortable in doing it. I think we all begin by trying to copy or trying to imitate some of our favorite broadcasters. And somewhere along the way, that that doesn't work anymore. You've got to create your own style and it has to be you. It has to be natural. It has to come from a genuine place. I think the the way that things were set up in Syracuse, it forced you to prove yourself every step of the way. You had to prove yourself as a writer before you ever got on the air. That's how it works at WAER. Until your casts are at a level that's acceptable, you don't move on to the next step. You don't get on the air. And that means you're getting reps. They're just personal reps. And it requires you to be critical of your own work. And I think in the bigger picture, that's helpful. Don't get me wrong. There are some that can get on the air right away and they've just got it. They've got the knack. They've got the gift of gab. And I was fortunate that I did get on the air right away at Z89 and eventually worked my way over to WAER. So I had the best of both worlds. But I think, and I don't want to make this across the board generalization about today's generation of of young broadcasters because it's not fair. But I think there's a tendency to want everything quickly and not necessarily see that there's a larger process in play, especially in broadcasting. It, It is baby steps and it's developmental and it's improving and it's listening back to your stuff and it's being honest, dead honest with the work that you're doing. Uh, For me, the philosophy has always been, uh, can you be conversational and can you be authoritative? Can you combine those two aspects where you don't sound like a robot, you don't sound like a machine, but you don't sound like some guy that you just pulled off the street? Can you walk that very fine line? And that's true in a sportscast. That's true in a talk show. That's true in a television anchoring spot, hosting spot, sideline reporting. And to me, which uh, I think for some, maybe they don't see it in the same light. It's also true in play by play. I want there to be a human connection when I'm doing the game that people that are listening or watching on television uh, don't feel that it's just some voice but that there's someone behind it, that there's an actual person behind the action that's being called. You know, you mentioned conversational and authoritative, and that is, uh, you could describe Marv Albert with those words. And I know he was a huge influence on you uh, just from hearing you speak in the past and reading up on you a little bit before this podcast. What type of influence did he have on you and the fact that he went to Syracuse, did that have to do with your decision-making? Yeah, it definitely played a role. Uh, there's no doubt when you look through the bios at that time of broadcasters that I appreciated. Uh, Marv and Bob Costas were two that really stood out. Marty Glickman, who was a big star, broadcasting star in the New York area and really got the whole cradle of broadcasting started at Syracuse. That played a role as well. Dick Stockton who at the time was calling NBA finals and uh, was doing big games on CBS before the move to Fox, uh, his background and his reputation also played a role. But Marvin particular resonated because of his versatility and he was ubiquitous in New York. 
He was doing the Knicks. He was doing the Rangers. He was popping up on the local news, 6 and 11 o'clock. He was doing national work for NBC, whether it be the NFL, boxing, eventually the NBA, at the time, college basketball. So I think just by the nature of how our media consumption was at that time, you you didn't have that many options. I couldn't just jump on YouTube and watch old tapes of other broadcasters. It was Marv, and it was a whole lot of Marv, and his style stuck with me. Uh, The fact that he used his voice in a way to build the drama, Uh, the fact that he could put a period on things and then let the crowd take over on a big call on a Nick game or a Ranger game, Uh, the fact that he could joke around with his analyst, that meant something to me that Okay, there was someone behind this voice that had a sense of humor uh, that they could bust one another's chops. And it and it was acceptable. It 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 wasn't a matter of of viewers looking around like, wait, you can't do that on a broadcast. Yeah, you you can. You can have fun. That's okay. You you can be a good team. He he seemed like a good teammate that uh, he was uh, doing his best to ingratiate. His analyst. So all those things definitely reverberated with me. And uh, whether it was uh, completely subconscious, uh, as I started to develop my own style, I think there were aspects of that. Bob Costas, uh, the fact that he was so eloquent and articulate on any subject matter, uh, he came to speak my senior year of college at, at Syracuse, and I was blown away. Uh, It was the only time in my life that I can recall that I I was stargazing when he walked in the room uh, and when he started to speak to the class, uh, I was in complete awe uh, because of uh, the way he carried himself and uh, the professionalism on the air. But off the air, it it was no joke that that was the real him. He didn't need a teleprompter. Uh, he he was uh, in that one hour session as uh, loquacious and articulate as he had been in any Olympic hosting assignment. And, and that meant a lot to me that uh, this was the real deal uh, in person and on my television set. Uh, so I think you have moments along the way that stick with you. You may not realize it at the time, but. Certainly looking back on it after spending a lot of years in, in this business and getting to know both of them, you know, I've gotten to know Marv and, and Bob very well. So to have it come full circle is, is pretty mind boggling when, when I look back at maybe the 17 year old version of myself. One of the things you mentioned in there that, that Marv was great at was being self-deprecating and working humor into the broadcast. Right now, I think you're the gold standard for that. I think that you do an incredible job at working that personality in while still being professional and getting the fundamentals straight. How do you do that? What are the keys to getting your personality in without going over the line and making it about you? Yeah, you nailed it, Logan. It can't be about you. If if it's all about you, at some point, the, the viewers or the listeners have had enough. Uh, they tune out. But uh, there has to be some semblance of chemistry and closeness in the broadcast combination in order to pull it off. Uh, that That's a, a given. 
if you are doing a solo act of funny lines and your analyst isn't on board, then it's not going to work. If if there are crickets at the end of these lines, then I'm not sure the audience is going to get it. Uh, some of my my stuff is deadpan because I'm deadpan in, in real life. So I recognize that not everybody is going to get it all the time. And I don't try to treat these games like amateur night at the Chuckle Hut. It can't be that way. The game is the most important thing. But if fans can feel some connection with the broadcast combination on the air and feel as if they're in on it and not that they're eavesdropping, but that they're a part of it. I, I think for many years on the local level, uh, I definitely went to places that I wasn't willing to go on the national level. And as the years have gone by, I've grown more comfortable and tossing a line out here. If it is genuine, if it is uh, in the moment and it belongs there, not trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. But I think who you have as a broadcast partner really does play a large role in that. Uh, with Bill Raftery, it was always very easy from day one. We just had a natural rapport and back and forth where we got one another. Dan Fouts on the NFL, who I've worked with now for a number of years, same situation, just a very close relationship off the air, and it translates on the air. If it doesn't, that's a problem. If you and a good friend of yours are working together for a two-hour broadcast, two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour broadcast, and you can't, as a viewer, sense that these two people like one another – then you're not doing your job well. But uh, I just want to make the point, Logan, I, I would never put any of that ahead of what is the, the main goal of a broadcast. The first part of it is to inform. The second part is to entertain. And if you can blend those two together, there's a pretty good chance you'll have a successful broadcast. And sometimes, based on the way a game plays out, the entertain part might move ahead of the inform part because you're in a 20-point blowout, and you're trying to keep the broadcast moving and, and keep it lively. And I've had a lot of experience doing that, having done Nets games for the last 24 years. That's a lot of games and sometimes a lot of losses for the local audience. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it engaging? And I think it's helped me quite a bit. Uh, those early struggles by the Nets and sitting alongside Bill Raftery and having his personality, his personality and his genuine enthusiasm come through the screen, uh, you couldn't help but get swept up in that and learn some things along the way. Uh, so uh, the humor part, uh, if if it's contrived, people will sniff it out. If you set up seven great lines that you've written down before the game, it's not going to work. Odds are you're not going to deliver them in a natural way. In the flow of a broadcast, if there is a moment to chuckle or laugh or to recognize that uh, this is not war, uh, this is still fun and games, I'm okay with that. But don't try to be something that you're not. If you're not naturally funny, if that's not a part of your personality, Trying to be funny on the air is is probably not going to work. Play within who you are and uh, don't don't try to be somebody else on the air. Ultimately, uh, the microphone doesn't lie. 
you might be able to to play it off for a broadcast here or a broadcast there or a call here or a call there. But uh, in the long run, who you are is revealed on the air. That's just too many hours of a live microphone being on that your true self isn't going to come through. It's interesting that you said that when, when for whatever reason it's not returned or maybe just the audience doesn't get it, it can come off as uncomfortable. And you probably know where I'm about to go with this. There was the dead spin uh, with your awkward exchange with Mike Fratello that you claimed was a joke. I have no reason to believe anything else, but it just wasn't understood by the audience. How do you walk that line to make sure that you're not too deadpan that the audience doesn't get it. Well, what I learned from that is we're in a completely new world. It, that, that back and forth with, with Mike was understood by the audience, by the local audience when it was taken completely out of context by a website, Deadspin put it on and the headline said awkward exchange. So the expectation when somebody hit the link was, Oh, my gosh, these guys hate each other. The reality was what led to that conversation was a complete joke between the two of us that uh, we drove back from Philadelphia together the night before. That was the second half of a back to back. And I had said it was wrong that that Mike had uh, forced me to wear a limo hat to drive him. And then the back end of it after the commercial where everybody thought that these two guys were going at it. When we returned from that commercial, if, if you had two broadcasters that hated one another and and were fighting, how would you come back from commercial and just go back to the game as if it was normal? You would have had fisticuffs or screaming or a producer having to get involved. It, it was all part of our dynamic, and it was late in the season in a year where the Nets did not win many games, if you recall. And that's how we would buy the time. But because it was put on a website and and others uh, took it to be uh, a brouhaha between the two of us, it took on a life of its own. It was a really interesting for me to, to watch the whole thing unfold. I mean, it got to the point my sister, who doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to to my broadcast, if I'm on in the area that she lives in Florida, she'll pop it on, but she, she's certainly not monitoring what I do day to day. I call, I got a call from her saying, is everything all right in your life? As if to say things had fallen apart and I was lashing out at people on the air. Uh, it, it, it was, a it was a very informative six week period by the time it, it died down. And I think people that know me and know me well were uh, pretty shocked that that it was depicted the way that it was. But, yeah, it's it's a lesson learned Uh, just because you've got something going on a local broadcast doesn't mean that uh, someone in in Bangor, Maine is going to understand it, especially when it's uh, promoted as a uh, awkward fight between two broadcasters that that never was. So let's go backwards a little bit to when you were graduating from Syracuse. You got your first job as a producer at WFAN, if I'm correct, in New York. And you got that with the promise that you would never be on the air, but you took the job (laughs) anyway. You know, what went into getting that? What connections 
uh, got you in the door and what was the decision to take that position like? Yeah, Logan and I had interned at WFA and radio in between my junior and senior year of college. And it was a three day a week internship. And each shift was for a different day part. And one of the day parts was uh, a Sunday afternoon into early evening, which meant a lot of Mets baseball over the summer. So I ended up being around Howie Rose, who was doing Mets pre and post game, Mets extra, and his producer, Eric Spitz, who now runs a CBS Sports Radio, and struck up a friendship. And relationships form, not right away. You have to feel your way through it and get a sense of how much they want you involved and what they're looking for from you as an intern. But as the summer went on, I, I found myself bonding with both of them. And during a Met game, the game's happening. Howie and Eric are just monitoring the game, but they're not in complete work mode. So that allowed for a lot of conversation and uh, for a relationship to form. I worked other shifts as well and worked with the uh, one and only Steve Summers, who was doing overnights at the time. Uh, one of my days was an overnight shift. And then I had a day shift as the transition was happening at, at the radio station. Pete Franklin was the afternoon host at that point, And uh, eventually Mike and the Mad Dog took over. So I had a little bit of contact with both Mike and Chris as as an intern. I was offered a couple jobs coming out of college on the air. I had a job offer in Buffalo. I had a job offer in West Virginia. And I, I wanted to be on the air. That was clear. But I got a call. It was late February of my senior year and was told that uh, there was going to be a job opening for the seven to midnight shift producing at FAN, Eric Spitz, who held down that position, was going to move to a new role during the daytime, almost as an assignment editor and running the newsroom. And that job would open at nights. And would I be interested in coming in to interview for it? I called Eric immediately. Our relationship was close enough that I could pick up the phone and, and talk to him. And, and I said, what's going on? He said, uh, yeah, job can open up. I'm changing jobs. I said, well, I got a call for an interview. He said, well, you should come interview. Even if, if you don't want the job, it would be a good experience. And it would put you in front of Mark Mason, the program director. And I thought he made a good point. So over my spring break, I went in, I interviewed with Mark Mason. And we just hit it off. Within three minutes, I had him laughing, and we had some commonality there. And by the end of the interview, it was a, maybe a 25-minute conversation, he asked me, well, when can you start? And I, I thought he was joking, but I answered and said, I graduate May 11th. I'd need a day to get home, and I could start May 13th. And he shook my hand. He said, great, we'll talk to you soon. And I walked out. Eric was working that day. I, I went over to Eric. He said, how'd it go? I said, I think I might have gotten the job. He said, no, I, I don't think so. Maybe you misunderstood. I was driving home to Syracuse that, that day. I went back to my dad's house. 
And I was packing my car up. The phone rang. My dad picked it up. He said, hey, Eric Spitz is on the phone. I picked up the phone. He said, I don't know what you said to Mark, but you're right. He wants you to to do this job. And this was still March. The job obviously wouldn't wouldn't be something I could do until May. And they kept it open for me and they held the job. They used fill-ins for a couple of months. And May 13th, as I had mentioned, that was the day I started. Graduated on a Saturday, started on a Monday. And the whole point of it was to be in New York, my hometown, a chance to work at the first all sports radio station in any capacity to me was too good of an opportunity to pass up to be in that environment and to learn, I felt was going to be invaluable and to be around the people that not, not only I respected, but that I one day wanted to be a colleague of, that was enough for me to take a job producing behind the scenes than going to a, a different market and trying to work my way back to New York in a circuitous manner. So when did you get on the air the first time and explain, am I off base by thinking they told you you would never be on the air there? Yeah. Uh, when I went in, I, I took the job. I started that, that week, and I sat down uh, with both Mark Mason and Eric Spitz and Howie Rose just to map out uh, what they expected out of the position. And Mark and Eric were rather blunt. They said, we hope you're not taking this job with the idea that you're going to be on the air because you're not going to be on the air here. And I said, no, I'm not taking the job with the idea of being on the air. But the reality was I was taking the job with the idea of being on the air. So I went to work. I was booking guests. I was running the show from uh, 7 to midnight. In addition to to uh, working those Mets broadcasts, FAN had the rights to the Knicks and the Rangers. And here's that, that Marv Albert angle again. He was doing the Rangers. And... <laughs> At the end of the broadcast, he would have to do the credits. And at the time, I'm 21 years old, lifelong New York sports fan. At the time, I believe that was the coolest thing to ever happen to me because at the end of the broadcast, he would say, studio production from Iron Eagle. And that was enough <laughs> To, to motivate me that I'm heading in the right direction. Marv Albert knows my name, knows what I do, and said my name flawlessly, just as I imagined it. Iron <laughs> Eagle. Guttural. Guttural in his, in his delivery. Uh, so, yeah, I, I knew that uh, they did not want me to have any kind of pipe dream that I was going to be on the air and I had to do my job, put my head down and do my job. That's what they, that's what they offered me. And that's what I took. With that said, uh, it didn't mean I, I stopped working behind the scenes to improve and all of the update guys at that time, John Minko, John Clossy, Stan Martin were pros and just observing them. And being around them, watching them on deadline, how they wrote their casts, 
how they delivered their sportscasts, I felt I was learning. And I wasn't doing a whole lot of of going to the back production room and making tapes because I just didn't have time. But I was paying attention. They started sending me out to cover some local events, Devils games, Nets games on the weekends. You would file a report, top of the hour updates. If there was a game on, you would go get sound and then do a final report that they would use in updates after the game. So I was getting little dribs and drabs of experience and meeting some people around the New York media scene. And in September of 91, I started in May of 1990. I must say I was getting antsy. Uh, Mike Tirico was leaving Syracuse to go to ESPN. Mike was a mentor of mine when I was at Syracuse and told me that he's leaving his job. He got a gig at ESPN and maybe I'd be interested in applying for his job at the CBS affiliate in Syracuse. To this day, that is the only tape I have ever sent out in my life where I went to the post office with a tape and a letter stating my interest in that job. I did get a call regarding that job, uh, but uh, I was never brought in for an interview. I got a call poking around to see what my interest was. The call came, I believe, a week after I got on the air for the first time at FAN doing updates. And the story behind the updates was uh, completely out of left field. I showed up for a normal day of work on a Friday. And Stan Martin, who helped make the schedule for updates, uh, he turned to me in the newsroom and and told me to go make a audition tape in the back. He didn't tell me why. I did a two-minute update with some sound in the production room. I brought it back to him. He went to the back room. He talked to Mark Mason. He came back, and he said, you're on the schedule on Sunday. Somebody was sick, and uh, they needed a, a fill-in. And that was it. That was the first time I did updates. It was late September of 91. I was put on the schedule the next week, the next week, the next week after that. Ended up doing my first show with Steve Levy, a five-hour pregame show. This was before Steve had moved on to local news. He was still working at FAN full-time. He eventually started working at Channel 2 in New York and then got the job at ESPN uh, within a year or two. It was Buffalo and Washington in the Super Bowl. We did a five-hour pregame show co-hosting, and then I was given weekend overnights, midnight to 6 a.m., Friday night into Saturday, midnight to 6 a.m., Saturday night into Sunday. For the rest of 1992, I was taken off the nighttime shift. I was put on the Mike and the Mad Dog shift. I was working with them Monday through Friday. I was doing these overnight shows, 12 hours of programming on the weekends. I was working seven days a week, and it was glorious. I was, I was thrilled. I felt like I was, I was making real progress in my career. And I was happy that I stayed and, and didn't try to look any further into that Syracuse opportunity. So how did you get from that point uh, to your position with the then New Jersey, now Brooklyn Nets? Well, in 1993, WFAN radio acquired the rights to the New York Jets. Mark Mason, the program director had left 
the station. He was replaced by Mark Chernoff. Uh, Mark Mason went on to 1010 Wins in New York, uh, the, the number one news station in the city. And Mark Chernoff had come from a musical background and working with Howard Stern, but was a huge sports fan and was very well thought of within the company. At that point, as a young guy, you have no idea if the new boss, and I, I guarantee you a number of your, your listeners have been through this. A new boss comes in, and their opinion could shape your career one way or the other. If the new boss comes in and says, "Yeah, I don't like that guy, you're done. Yeah, maybe you fill out your contract and complete it, but the seed has been planted, or you're given a chance to convince him otherwise. I remember quite vividly being concerned. I had just gotten on the air. I was doing a bunch of shows. I was doing updates. Mark Chernoff comes on board. I knew Mark Mason liked me. He discovered me. He put me on the air. He believed in me. Mark Chernoff is someone I've never met before. And I met with Mark and he told me to my face, I like what you do. And that in and of itself was enough to convince me that that everything was was going to be OK. The Jets broadcast come to WFAN radio. Mark Chernoff comes to me and says, I'd like you to host the pre and the post game. This was 1993. And I took the gig and I thought it gave me a, a new level of cachet within the radio station. I, I had something to call my own. I was the jet guy for that time period. And in doing those pre and post game shows, it was high profile. The team itself was going through a little bit of a rebuild. It was the end of Bruce Coslett. Then it was Rich Kotite. And I think it it put me on the map a bit more in New York sports. The Nets job popped up when I saw a Phil Mushnick column that stated that Howard David, the longtime radio voice of the New Jersey Nets, would not return for the 1994-95 season. At that point, I had done no play-by-play -play since my senior year of college, which was 89-90. But I knew I wanted to pursue that that part of the business, if possible. Uh, talk radio was was what was happening for me at that point. But I saw beyond the trees and and thought if there was a New York play by play job that opened up, I had to at least put myself in a position to try to get it. I made a couple calls. One was to Don Sperling at NBA Entertainment. Uh, Don now runs uh, the media portion of the New York Giants football club. And Russ Salzberg, who was working at WFN at the time, but had very strong ties to New Jersey, working at WORTV, and asked him, both of them, who would be the best guy to talk to. They said, both of them said, hey, call the director of broadcasting and... Uh, I'll do my best to pass along your name to John Spolstra, who was the president of the team and the father of current Miami Heat head coach, Eric Spolstra. 
And through a very quick series of events, I spoke with Amy Shear, the director of broadcasting. I convinced her to take my tape, even though they were late in the process. I drove to New Jersey. I knew nothing about New Jersey. I was from New York. I lived in New York. Uh, There were jug handles in New Jersey. You had to go right to make a left-hand turn. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I drove out to the Nets offices. Amy Shearer came to meet me in the lobby. I handed her a tape. It was a tape from my senior year of college. Uh, I put Seton Hall and Syracuse on the tape, a buzzer beater by Ollie Taylor of the Pirates at the Meadowlands. I thought it would just be good karma. The game was at the Meadowlands, and that's where the Nets played. And that was it. I walked away and didn't know if there would be any traction there. She called me the next day and said, hey, we, we, we like your tape. I played for my boss, Jim Lamparello. He wants to hear more. Do you have something more recent? <laughs> I thought to myself, I have nothing more. Re- That's it. That's all I've got. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get you something else. Great. When can you get it to me? He said, how about tomorrow? Super. I had to figure out a way to now create more content that was more recent. I called two friends of mine that I knew from NBA Entertainment, Steve Herbst and Rich Koppelnick, and I asked them, is there any way to go into your studio and call a game off of television and put some ambient sound behind it? They both said, "Uh, yeah, I think we could probably figure it out. Come on in. They stuck me in a little studio I called the Knicks-Nets playoff game for a half from the previous season. They had somebody put some crowd behind it, and then I drove it over to the Nets offices, which was only about 10 minutes from the NBA Entertainment Studios, and I gave that tape to Amy Shear. She called me the next day and said, uh, the president of the team would like to meet with you, and that was John Spolstra. We sat down for an interview, uh, once again, hit it off. Uh, I, I did have a bold move in that interview that I don't know if it was complete naivete, if it was blind confidence, if I was having an out-of-body experience. But basically, at the end of the interview, uh, I said to John, I really appreciate you meeting with me. I just want to let you know that. If you hire me for the rest of my career, you'll be known as the person that gave me that huge break in play-by-play. And I intend on having a long career and successful one. And he looked at me for a moment. I didn't know if he took it as, boy, this guy is being really cocky. But fortunately, he didn't take it that way. He smiled. He had a big, broad smile. He stood up. He shook my hand and and said, really nice talking with you, great meeting with you. And I walked out of there, I called my wife, and I said, uh, I, think, I think I might get this job. We actually were, we were celebrating our one year wedding anniversary, we went to San Francisco to wine country, and I checked my, this is pre-cell phone, I checked my answering machine at home, and there was a call from Amy Shear on the answering machine, telling me to call her, immediately, which I did. And, and she told me that I got the job and uh, my life changed dramatically 
in about a one week period uh, that from from the moment I read the the Phil Mushnick column to the moment I got the job was seven to eight days. It, it was a complete whirlwind. The last question about the the steps on the ladder. A few years later, you ended up getting your first position with CBS. I believe it was 1998. How did that come about? Yeah, that that story is unique as well. I was doing the Nets on TV. I ended up getting the TV job the next year and working with Bill Raftery. And that was a a game changer for me on, on so many levels. But from a professional standpoint, I was still curious to see what other opportunities there might be. Fox, when I got the Jets job in 1997, had offered me a couple of games during the season. I went to Joel Hollander, the GM of, of WFAN at the time, and asked him if I could get out of a couple of Jets games to, to call the Fox games. And he said, oh, that is great that they, uh, they gave you that, that chance. Unfortunately, no, you're, you're not going to be able to get out of the Jets games. I said, no. And he said, no. How, how can I justify? You've got 16 games. I'm going to let you out of three of them to go call games for Fox. I can't do it. And I understood. And you have to be a big boy in those situations as well. And ultimately, you need to placate your employers. So I, I called back uh, Bill Brown at Fox, who had made the offer, and, and told him, unfortunately, I, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Little did I know that uh, an opportunity would pop up at another network. It was February 7th, 1998, all-star break. And CBS's entire broadcasting team was in Nagano for the Winter Olympics. They had nobody in the U.S. to call three college basketball games that weekend. And I ended up getting a shot. My agent at the time had been in contact uh, with CBS. There was a new executive producer that was taking over, and I think they were looking for some new talent. Terry Ewart was not working with the Nagano group. He was in New York transitioning to the job. And the three broadcasters that covered college hoops that day for CBS were Joel Myers, Jim Durham, and me. I got a shot. And I remember I had a net game. I had a fly into Arkansas. Uh, the group had already met with the Razorbacks. So I went in after the fact, met one-on-one -on -one with Nolan Richardson. Uh, he gave me 20 minutes, uh, just chat about the team. They were playing Vanderbilt. And nothing major really happened in the game. It was a fairly nondescript SEC game. But it was a CBS game. They sent me the Blazer. It was a 38 short. And it had the emblem on it. And that meant a lot to me. Flew down, did the game, went back and didn't feel like life changed at all. Uh, I talked to my agent at the time and he spoke with CBS and Terry Ewart said, yeah, we thought Ian did a did a really good job and uh, really liked the way he handled the traffic. And my agent said, did. Did you help get the cars out after the game? What would you do exactly? I said, no, no. I think he meant the traffic of the broadcast. 
the count's going to break. We had non-CBS producers and directors because everybody was a Nagano. So it was a hodgepodge group. It was Hogan's Heroes. It was a mishmash of technical people and announcers. I did the game with John Sunvold, who could not have been any nicer, by the way. Great guy. And that was it. I figured that was it. I got a call a week later from a woman by the name of Maddie Hetzel at CBS Sports. And she said, hey, Ian, uh, we have a Syracuse-Georgetown game on the schedule and I just want to see if you're available to do it. I said, what, what's the date? And it might have been the, the 21st. I look at my schedule. I have a net pacer game, I believe, that day. And I know I can't get out of it. You know, I've got a contract. I've got uh, a certain number of games uh, that I have to do. And I tell her, I can't believe I'm saying this because that would be a complete dream come true. But I, I'm not going to be able to do the game. She said, oh, that, that's unfortunate. She said, okay, well, I'll let you know when we're having our college basketball seminar for the tournament, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll just give you the dates. I said, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I hang up the phone thinking, <laughs> she's a silly lady. She, she's just mentioning the tournament to me as if I'm doing the tournament. Call my agent. Uh, who, again, thought I helped with the traffic after the game. And I said, look, she mentioned the NCAA term. He said, no, I, I don't think so. They, they didn't mention that. He makes a call, and yes, they had me slotted in to do the NCAA tournament. That's how I found out. Uh, as, as crazy as that might seem, uh, that's how all of that came together. I did the NCAA tournament. I did go to my boss at the time at MSG and explain the situation, explain the opportunity. Unlike the previous situation with the Jets and with Fox, you know, I made it pretty clear that, that I really wanted to uh, get a chance to do this. And then I thought it would be good also for the network and the reputation that they employ broadcasters that uh, work at a high level. And during the tournament, I got sent to Sacramento with Jim Spinarkle, who also got the tournament. I had done Hundreds of games with Jim. He was the backup to Bill Raftery on the net. So Jim and I were very close and uh, certainly had chemistry on the air and uh, a very good relationship. USA Today, Rudy Martsky has a column while we're at the tournament that CBS had gotten the rights to the NFL. And they would be taking over the AFC package from NBC. And at that point, I figured I would be a candidate, which I was. And and eventually got the job, and I've been doing it now for, for 20 years. Okay, that is a fantastic story. I want to bring up something that you probably, I mean, there's no reason for you to remember this, but we very briefly met in about, I think it was 2014 or 2015, in Salisbury, <laughs> North Carolina, at the National Sports Media event. Uh, you were speaking at a seminar, and you told a story about doing boxing, when you had never done boxing before and yeah. you just said they said can you do boxing and you just said yes similar to the way that you they said can you send us more tape and you said yes even though you didn't have more tape how do you find these ways to take advantage of these opportunities even when maybe you're not the most qualified person but you find a way to make yourself qualified yeah i think uh, logan uh, 
obviously know enough about you and uh, I would assume the people that, that listen to the podcast, uh, there has to be an understanding that you're a student of this. If this is your life, if this is your career, if this is what you've chosen to do, then you have to fully immerse yourself in it. You can't just be toe in the pool. You've got to dive in. So I, I made a pact with myself very early on. If somebody called with an opportunity, don't allow fear to enter the equation. In fact, go the other way. Go with complete confidence. And that's been the way that I've attacked this thing is if somebody calls and they're giving me a chance to be on the air to do something, even if I haven't done it before, I have to have enough confidence in my ability and be a student of this to learn how to do it. Teach yourself, and especially now with uh, as many options that are out there to uh, learn about a given sport, about how to broadcast it, about how to acquire a, a glossary of terms. There's no excuses, none. You know, fortunately, as I was coming up at, at CBS, they believed in my abilities. So I was assigned things that maybe I didn't think I was necessarily right for. The boxing assignment, which was four fights in the summer of 2000. Dan Deardorff was supposed to do them. Deardorff had done play-by-play for ABC unboxing. He had worked with Alex Wallow at ABC and had transitioned to some play-by-play work. And Dan, truly one of the most gifted broadcasters I've ever worked with, really uh, a excellent communicator. But Dan had some personal conflicts. Uh, one of his kids might have been getting married at the time. And then on the other date, he had something he had committed to, whether it was a college Hall of Fame ceremony. He couldn't do all four. He couldn't commit to them. And Terry Ewert, the executive producer, wanted someone to do all four, the same voice, consistent. And that's when uh, they made the offer to me. Later on, track and field. I'd never been to a track and field event. Yeah, I'd watched the Olympics and had a working knowledge of some sort with the rhythm of calling an event like that. But I'd never done it. I ended up doing eight straight track and field events for CBS, the NCAA Outdoor Track and Field Championships. Craig Silver, the producer, just believed in me, came up to me and said, hey, look, Vern's been doing this. He can't do it anymore. It just doesn't work with his schedule. I really want you to do this. At the time, the Nets were among the elite teams in the Eastern Conference, and they would make deep runs in the playoffs. And that particular year, they got knocked out early. And I called Craig and said, okay, I'm in. And it ended up being a joy. It was, it was a blast. Something different, something new, something to challenge your brain. Golf. I'm not a golf guy. I don't play. I don't obsess over it. I don't build my weekends around watching it. But when CBS calls you and says, hey, look, we're doing some internet coverage at the Masters that's never been done before. And we're calling it Amen Corner Live. And we want you to do it. What's your reaction? It has to be yes. You can't. You can't just turn it down because you say, well, 
I'm not into it. Well, get into it. Figure it out. I ended up doing that for seven years. And my schedule then didn't allow me to do it based on some other assignments and the fact that uh, I couldn't miss uh, that many net games. I, I just couldn't make the numbers work. But I enjoyed it. And it gave me new insight into a sport that I hadn't covered before. I ended up doing a bunch of PGA championships as well uh, with the same format of, of doing uh, internet coverage of specific holes or specific groups. Tennis, which I actually did have a background in. I played as a kid. I played in high school and have been a fan of. Uh, CBS had the U.S. Open. I floated the idea to the producer, Bob Monsbach. Hey, look, if you're ever in a bind and you need somebody to do tennis, I haven't done it, but I think I could. And I think I could be good at it. He said, oh, all right, that's good to know. It's not like he called me three weeks later and said, we're ready for you. Three years later, he said, look, Bill McAtee's got a golf event and we're going to need somebody to fill in on a tournament. Can you do it? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Ended up doing the U.S. Open for 12 years. I've done the French Open now for 12 years and have enjoyed it. Something different. Again, exercising a different muscle in your brain, uh, a different way to prepare. But uh, the one thing that's common in all of these assignments, and, and Logan, this holds true for any broadcaster, I look at it as three-pronged. Preparation. That never changes. Whatever assignment you're given, you have to put in the preparation. That's a, that's a given. That's an automatic. Now, the level in which you prepare is going to vary based on your personality and based on what makes you feel comfortable. Uh, for me, I'd rather over-prepare and not use the majority of what I've prepared than under-prepare and then look up and there's a lot of time left in the event that you're covering and you've got nothing. You've exhausted everything that you came ready with. The preparation is a must. Uh, we, we don't even start this conversation without that. I know that there might be those that watch games or listen to games that just assume, and that's fine, that people that do what we do just show up. Oh, what a great job. You just show up, you call the game, you go home. Okay. It doesn't matter. They, they don't need to know. But so much of your work is done on your time. And that's a very personal side of the business of how you deal with it, how you space out your preparation time and your process of getting ready for these games. The second part is performance. You could be tremendous at the preparation part, but not as good at the performance part and the broadcast will suffer. You could be great at the performance part and not as good at the preparation part. And the audience might be convinced, wow, this this broadcaster really knows their stuff and they know how to how to sell it. I think something I've learned through the years is when to use the information that that you've accumulated and not to force it and not to try to prove that. You are informed. If it works in the flow of a broadcast, you go with it. If it's germane to what's happening on the court, on the field, on the ice, you go with it. But if you're forcing it because you wrote it down and by hook or by crook, you have to get it in on the air, 
that's a problem. That means you're not going with your gut feel. The performance aspect, that's often what you're judged on. You still have to perform. You're talking into a microphone. You're emoting. And everything we talked about earlier, Logan, a part of you has to come through. If that's not happening, then you've got to reassess the way that you're doing these games. So the performance aspect, which is, again, a very personal thing, uh, how you use your voice, uh, inflection, vocabulary, are you invested, completely invested in what you're doing? And that leads to the third part, uh, which is being in the moment. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what you feel like, woke up with some congestion or you've had a headache all day, all of that has to be blocked out. It requires concentration and steely focus to do these games and to do them well. When the headset goes on, the only thing that you should be worried about is what's happening in front of you. And that's hard. We all have lives. We all have things happening outside of the event that we're covering. But for that two hour, three hour, three and a half hour period, everything you've got has to be thrown into that event. And that requires uh, a lot of commitment. And it also requires you to have a good feel for what the audience needs, not what you need. What does the audience need? What is it that the viewer requires or the listener requires? Can you be the conduit and convey the emotion and drama of the event that you're covering? That's it. it it's the simplest way to put it, but it's true. That's what the job entails. And of course, all the time that you spend leading up to it with your preparation and then the performance aspect, it all factors in. Uh, but the ultimate part is, uh, are you fully engaged? And uh, do you have the right sense of what works in the moment? Can you put together the right words to capture what's happening in the game? that you're working. That's it. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions that were submitted to me via social media from some, from a couple listeners and a couple of them are very good. One of them says for a radio guy trying to get better at TV, how should his focus change uh, from TV basketball as opposed to radio does Do you prep differently? And once the game is underway, what do you focus on differently? What are the key things you always try to hit on TV? Yeah, TV, uh, you are obviously pulling back quite a bit. And if you're using any words that describe direction, left, right, you've got a problem. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear near side. I don't want to hear far side. Uh, it's, it's a waste of words. You have to be economical. You have to be efficient in, in how you're approaching this. In addition, you have to work with your analyst quite a bit more. 
whether it's tagging what they say, whether it's setting them up, whether it's laying out and allowing them to analyze. Uh, to me, that becomes such a big part of the presentation. It, it truly is a tandem, a team. On radio, you're running the show. That's how it's always going to be. You're painting the word picture. You have the blank canvas. It doesn't happen unless you say it. It may be happening and you should be mirroring what's happening on the field or on the ice or on the court, but you don't have time to think about what's coming out of your mouth. It has to be instinctual and it has to be in rhythm. I think the other part too, which holds true for both TV and radio, consistency is, is a big key. You know, I know for young broadcasters, Oftentimes they do a game and the first thing that hits them is, ooh, I think I have a good three minute stretch there. I feel really good about that. And I understand because I went through it like everybody else. When you're a young broadcaster, you're, you're looking for the best representation of, of what you do and who you are. But you have to get to a point in this business where you no longer see it as, as a good three minutes. You have to be proud of the whole thing and you have to be open to the idea that at any point, anybody can turn on your broadcast and pick it up midway through the first quarter, late in the fourth quarter, uh, early in the second period, whatever it might be. And you have to be at your best because you don't get to choose when they start tuning in. And you have to shift your focus from, wow, I got a really good stretch there to, no, I'm really proud of the whole thing. From start to finish, if somebody tuned in, I thought that was a fair representation of my work and what I do and who I am and how much I put into it. So for the basketball side of things, what I try to focus in on um, more than anything else is bringing energy, uh, contrived but natural energy, using the parts of your voice that convey the energy of the event that you're covering. And putting a period on things on TV, I think that's such a big part of it is either putting a period or an exclamation point on things on radio, uh, not as much case it's it's long sentences and it's the best way to describe what you see in front of you. And we all have different ways to do it, but finding the way that produces a consistent call that people know when they tune into you they know what they're going to get familiarity plays a big role in that and I, i've certainly learned that with 20 years at, at cbs uh, if you become more of a familiar voice then people are at ease oh I, yeah i know this person i know what i'm going to get but that also comes with consistency and that doesn't happen over one broadcast doesn't happen over one season it's when you bank years and years and years and years of this, and you know that when a viewer turns on that game, that they're going to get a high-level broadcast, and they're going to get everything that you've got. And you don't take it for granted just because it's Nets and Kings on a Tuesday night. I don't take it any less seriously than Duke, Virginia on a Saturday afternoon. Another question also involves preparation. How much prep 
do you find on your own versus how much is provided for you once you reach the level that you're at? Yeah, it's a funny concept uh, with the way this business works. If you're doing high school football locally in your town, you get very little information and you have very little support. It's all you. Yet, if you're doing the Super Bowl, you're getting more notes and tidbits than you know what to do with. And you have a spotter and you have a stat person and you have a specialty stat person and you have somebody that is making sure that the booth is warm and you've got food and you've got a bathroom in the booth. It's a strange juxtaposition because all of those things you really need when you're doing the high school football to make the broadcast better. And when you get to the level of doing playoff games, championship games, Super Bowls, you figure, well, the game can do itself. I've got all the information that I need. But that's the business that we're in, and and that's how it works. The, the different part of it is also the stakes are, are much higher. You have millions upon millions of viewers uh, waiting uh, at, at every turn for what's going to come out of your mouth next. So uh, you understand that. Uh, the the level of what's expected of you is considered much different than someone who's doing a high school football game. But the personal pride still comes into play. And I don't care what your assignment is. Treat it like it's the most important assignment there is. Don't fool the audience. Don't don't scream and yell at the top of your lungs on every play uh, for a regular season high school football game. Understand that everything is done within context and build towards those big moments like you would in in any event. Uh, Preparation hasn't changed a whole lot other than the information that's available to me. When I started out in 1998 with the NFL on CBS, I would have the media guide sent to me by the respective teams. I would try to dig as much information as I could from those guides And a lot of it would would make air because there just wasn't as much at your fingertips as the years have gone by. I've realized that there's so much more out there and there are better ways to use your time. So I would tell you the media guides have become less and less important, almost to the point where you you barely you barely read them. Maybe you you just do a, a quick perfunctory read just to make sure you're on top of all the, the information that you need on a personal level. But now you dig a lot deeper. And uh, no doubt, uh, networks provide you with more information, but it can't be the backbone of what you're doing. For me, at least, I still have to do it the way that I always did it. And that's by hand. And I've, I've been contacted by a number of people and a number of companies that would be willing to print my charts for me and do the information And I don't wear it as a badge of honor. I think everybody has their own way of doing it. And for those who do it that way, more power to them. If that helps them and that works for them and they can get the information quickly, great. Uh, No no qualms with that whatsoever. For me, I still need to write it. I still need old school. I still need multicolors. I still need to format in the way that makes me comfortable when I look down at my board and I need something quickly. I know where it is. I'm not searching for somebody else's information. It's my information. And that's the way I've always done it. Uh, That hasn't changed. That part's the same. I'm standing in my office right now. And if I could give you the visual, I've got four piles of things. I've got an NBA pile with games that are coming up and boards that I'm working on. 
I've got a college basketball pile with the two teams I did last week, Virginia and Duke, and the two teams I'm doing this week with Kentucky and Missouri. I have some old folders out that have information that I can use for some upcoming broadcasts that will live. I try to keep my my charts for a four-year period, and then at that point, as hard as it, as it is to uh, to let them go, I let them go. I let them I let them into the universe, which which means they get shredded somewhere or tossed into uh, a sanitation bin. But it served its purpose. I have NFL charts still floating around my desk because uh, I'm still doing some interviews on the Super Bowl. So I want to make sure that I'm up to date on information with the Eagles and the Patriots and. Uh, I have uh, something to refer to uh, because of the work that I put in during the season. Uh, it just, it doesn't change. I think it's a part of who you are in this business. And the day that you don't enjoy the preparation is probably the day you have to consider making some changes to your schedule. I still like it. I still have a curiosity. I still enjoy the steps needed to get ready for a broadcast. Even when I'm juggling four or five games in a week, different sports, some TV, some radio, uh, there's, there's a challenge to it. And I, I like the exercise that it puts on my brain of having to shift gears, having to change uh, my approach. And that's also why I like working with so many different partners. Uh, you can't get complacent. You, you have to always be on your feet and yeah, that's the other thing I would, would leave with you, Logan, on, on that front, working with different partners. You have to be malleable. You have to be flexible. You shouldn't look at it the other way. You know, some play-by-play people might say, well, I'm going to do what I do, and they're going to just have to work around me. No, 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 no. No, they're the analyst. They're the expert. You work around them. Some of them have a good sense of humor. Use it. Some of them are incredible at replays. Use it. Some of them come from a different angle with a viewpoint that you've never heard before. Use it. Use all of that to your advantage. Get the most out of them because if they're doing well, odds are you're doing well as a team and people are enjoying the back and forth. If it's you talk, they talk, you talk, they talk, that's not going to work. It has to be shared conversation. And the final question from social media how do you prepare between seasons? And I'm going to assume that means how do you smoothly transition from one sport to another? Yeah, I think anyone that does multiple sports has the deep, deep fear that somehow you will mangle something in the moment and you'll have Kevin Durant catching a touchdown on a post pattern. That That's a problem. If your wires get crossed to that level, you need to take a step back. Uh, for years and years and years, Bill Raftery, when I would travel with him, he would write down his room number or he would rip off uh, the little piece of paper that was connected to the room key. And I'd say, you, you don't know your room number? He goes, uh, you'll see, bird. You'll see. And he was right. Like at some point, your brain just can't handle its excess information. And I can't tell you how many times now I've gone to a hotel where I've gone to my room, I've put the key in, it doesn't work. I go down to the front desk. I said, yeah, it's last name Eagle. My key's not working. It's room 432. And then they type into the computer. They do a lot of typing on those computers. 
And they said, uh, sir, you're in room 1138. Oh, yes, of course. So there is information overload. <laughs> you, you can push the bandwidth on your brain. The key is compartmentalizing more than anything else. And it's the one thing that I feel like I've, I've got a good handle on of going back and forth in my preparation and siphoning my time in a way that is productive. But it really does mean getting ahead. If you're a procrastinator, this is not for you. You've got to have a clear idea and plan in place of how you're going to prepare for these events. If I know for a fact that the Nets are playing the Grizzlies, the Raptors, and the Wizards coming up, I'm going to get on that. I'm not going to wait till the day of or two days before. If anything, I'm going to chip away at it and try to produce those boards two weeks ahead of time so that I'm not feeling stress. The football, I can't control that as much. Uh, usually we get our assignments two weeks ahead of time. College basketball, I'm not living in that world enough to do things too far ahead. NBA, I can't. I know if I do my Wizards board, I'm going to be able to call and and refer to that information at a moment's notice when the game starts. Of course, I'll work on the game itself the day of the game. I'll get more specific. But for the board, for the uh, for the information that I need when I hit courtside for that night, I can get some of that done early. College basketball, I usually have to wait the, wait the week of uh, just based on the fact that uh, you can confuse yourself. If I started working on Kentucky and Missouri last week, the week of Duke, Virginia, I don't think that would have been a smart move. So Monday morning of that week, I go full throttle. And next week, I've got Kansas and Baylor, and I haven't thought about Kansas and Baylor yet. I will attack that on Monday morning and begin to form the, the basis of the information that I need to do the game. But compartmentalizing is the key and getting ahead. Uh, do not wait for the last minute on these things. Do not pull a cram session the night before. Couple more things I want to get to. Um, again, at Salisbury, there was a very memorable moment. But uh, you were chosen with Jay Billis to be one of the two people who uh, gave the pre-speech when Bill Raftery was inducted into the Sports Media Hall of Fame. And you, you guys essentially did a ten to fifteen minute long roast of him that was just <laughs> hysterical, and I remember just laughing the entire time. Take us through that moment, how you decided to take that angle and what Bill Raftery has meant to you. Well, uh, Logan, it was Sean McDonough and I. Uh, Jay, Jay was there, uh, but Sean and I ended up going up there to do a, a tag team to present Bill uh, with his award. And Sean is a brilliant guy and one of the most gifted play-by-play -play announcers out there. And behind the scenes, if you meet him off the air, uh, really smart and has a very good sense of humor, but very dry, very dry sense of humor. 
Sean and I were sitting next to one another and Sean and I text uh, throughout the year, but uh, we, we don't talk a whole lot when we do see each other. It, it's always a enjoyable back and forth. Sean turns to me and says, well, what are you doing? I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I, I don't know either. He said, did you write anything? I said, no, I didn't write anything. I said, did you write anything? He said, no, I wrote nothing. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's just go wing it. He said, yeah. I said, yeah. You talk. Then I'll go up there and then I'll get out of the way and then you'll go up there and then we'll rotate. So we had no idea what we were going to say, what the other person was going to say and how it would come off. I just knew in my heart that it was going to work. I don't know why, but I just felt it knowing Sean's personality and knowing my personality and knowing uh, Bill and the fact that uh, he would be such a good sport about it. And you're right. It, it was a bit of a roast session, but it didn't go too far over the line. And everything that we, we told was true. And there were some things that we couldn't share because it just wouldn't have been appropriate. But what I can tell you about Bill is I'm not sure that I would be where I am today if not for him. Not because he put a call into anyone or he championed my cause. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with being around someone who was his true self on the air. And I know that's hard to believe for, for the layman that would say, well, what do you mean? Why, why wouldn't you be? When the red light goes on and everyone always says, hey, just be yourself. That's sometimes the hardest thing to do. Something happens inside of us that you want to try to be some other version of yourself when you're on the air. Bill is who he is at all times. And being a young broadcaster sitting next to him and getting that kind of experience and seeing it firsthand, that was like going to graduate school and beyond uh, for broadcasting. And it taught me that don't broadcast in fear and don't question your instincts because his instincts have always been outstanding and they've worked for him. There's a reason why he's at the top of his profession. The fact that he's a genuine person, he's one of the nicest human beings that I've ever been around. And that was also a lesson as well, treating people with respect. I didn't only learn that from Bill. I learned that from my own father, who was an entertainer, a stand-up comedian, an actor, a musician. That uh, was something that I saw every day in his public life and how he treated people. But to have it reinforced by Bill, who gets stopped quite a bit, and he gives everybody the time of day everybody. He makes everybody comfortable. And uh, I've tried to emulate that in my own life. And you can't fake that. Uh, to me, it doesn't take that much effort to be nice and to be warm and to make somebody feel good in the moment. So Amidst all the broadcasting lessons, I think the life lessons as well for Bill uh, have have been just as valuable. And he's he's one of the best friends that I've made in this business. You know, put age aside, it, it's completely irrelevant. 
uh, he and his wife and his family, Joan and, and his kids, they're like family to, to my wife, Elisa, and my family, Noah and Aaron, my, my kids. They're like family. That's that's real. That that's just not something that that comes about by happenstance. Uh, that that's a real relationship that's developed through the years. I'm going to blame the abundance of free cocktails at the event for getting the wrong person wrong. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Jay was there, and you're not wrong. And Jay would have also done a bang up job. I think Jay had done that for Bill on a couple of other occasions. So it was just a matter of mixing it up that night. But uh, yeah, the the free cocktails uh, definitely played a role, I think, for all of us. <laughs> so we've been doing this for almost an hour and a half already, and I need to probably get you on your way here. But I have one more question that I really wanted to get to that I'm going to make sure I shoehorn in here. You were the guy on the reboot of NBA Jam, which for my my childhood memories was my favorite Super Nintendo game when they rebooted it. I don't remember what year it was. I absolutely had it and played it a ton. And hearing your voice on that, of course, made it better. What was it like doing the play-by-play for NBA Jam? Yeah, I've done a bunch of video games. I'm I'm doing one now called NBA Playgrounds, which is probably as close to the original NBA Jam as you're going to find in many ways, just based in style and how they design the game. Uh, I did uh, a number of games for Sony through the years, NBA games and a couple NFL games. It is a laborious process. The finished product is really cool, but getting there is arduous. (laughs) It's a lot of meticulous voice work of trying to match inflection with previous inflection and repetitive nature of names, numbers, scores, calls, uh, trying to create energy in the moment. It's, uh, it's something that I look back on, and I think it's made me better in, in certain ways, because you didn't have the crowd there, and you had to create it on your own. And the soundtrack, you run the risk, And I know this might sound strange. You run the risk of at some point not being yourself because you're saying the same thing over and over again with different inflections. And you have to catch yourself in, is this natural or at this point, do I just sound like a a facsimile of of who I normally am? And it's hours upon hours. There, There were eight hour sessions. So even how to use your voice. That was an invaluable information for me of pushing the limits of of how far you can go. I don't know if you go through this, Logan. I do, uh, like everybody else. You know, I've been really fortunate in avoiding any major sickness through the years or something that just collared me for a week or two weeks. But like everybody else that's in this business, there are days that you don't wake up feeling the best or you get to the broadcast and something's off a bit. So for me, I've I've figured out that there are games where I have my A voice and there are games where I have my B voice and there are some games where I have my C voice. And I'm not sure that anybody else could figure that out and could hear it or discern between the two or the three, but I can. I know the difference. 
And in doing those video games, you would push your vocal cords to the limit and you'd have to come up with ways to to keep going. So uh, whether it was Ricola's, which I still use today, uh, whether it's a throat coat from uh, certain stores and probably can go get it on Amazon.com as well. Uh, that's the name of the tea throat coat. Whatever it takes, everybody's got to figure out what works for them in maintaining their voice and feeling ready to, to do these games. And for the video games, uh, I, I figured out pretty quickly, I, I need to uh, find different ranges within my voice. Uh, this is very inside, but I'll toss it out to you because of, of your interest level. My mother was a professional singer. As mentioned, my father was an entertainer as well. And there were years that I remember as a child, my mother was a, a two-pack-a-day smoker and unfortunately died of, of lung cancer at a very young age, at uh, the age of, of 45. And she would have no voice during the day. And I, I knew they had a show that night. And I, I'd ask my father, I'd say, how is she going to possibly go on tonight? He'd say, well, she, she just has this, this innate ability and it's something she was born with and, and she's figured out to talk and sing above her chords. I, I was seven years old. I said, what? What does that mean? And he would try to explain it to me. I didn't quite fully grasp it. I do now, uh, all these years later, and it was, it's, it's been self-taught. That even in moments where I don't have what I deem as enough, I can find a way. I can dig deep and get enough of my voice out on the air to do the game. And I think every broadcaster has to find their vocal range and be honest with it and know their limits. Look, I know for a fact. I can't go to a dinner the night before a game in a crowded restaurant where it's loud. I can't do it. I can't go to a concert the night before a game and sing along with you too. I can't do it. It's just not smart. So I've, I've juggled all these assignments and my health in trying to be as smart as possible. Even drinking during the season, I tend not to do it. I try to avoid it. If it chips away even a little bit at my voice quality, I'm not going to take any chances. You know, I take about six weeks off now, which I never used to do, but about six weeks off from June into July uh, that I really savor that time to reboot and recharge my battery and also maybe do some of the things that I don't do during the season, uh, see people and uh socialize and drink and go to restaurants that maybe I don't get to frequent during the season. In season, I'm, I'm all in. And part of that requirement is uh, based on uh, sticking with a, a strict way of leading your life and getting enough sleep, forcing yourself to get enough sleep. And uh, as we talked about with the preparation, uh, using your time constructively and effectively. And if you know you're going to be on a plane for three hours, well, get three hours worth of work done. Uh, don't just uh, watch Netflix for three hours. Use that time productively. 
And I think it's all intertwined in many ways. And it's also being a little bit more mature and uh, getting a better hold on, on how to handle yourself. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast, episode number 58. Thank you to Ian Eagle for joining me for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it on the social media outlet of your choice. And I really appreciate honest reviews on iTunes. It's the only way I know how I can improve the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode. And remember, next time you're on the air to Say the Damn Score.